It could have happened because of a deep wound that was caused to you that threw you off your trajectory. Or it could have been from a season of healing that put you on a new path. We've all had defining moments. What are some of yours? What's interesting to me about defining moments is how not only do they have the capacity to shape our lives, but also have the capacity to shape the lives of the people around us. If we think about it, history is filled of people having defining moments that shape the world in which we all live. For example, in 1736, there was a young English clergyman who was setting off for America. He was going to become a missionary. But along the way, his ship encountered a tremendous storm. Almost everybody on the board the ship was terrified as they thought for sure they were about to die. All except for one group of individuals. In the midst of all that fear and chaos, there was one group that remained incredibly calm. And it was a group of Moravian, German Moravians. The Moravians were these German, pious, evangelical types that took their faith in the Lord very seriously. And when that young English clergyman saw their faith, he thought to himself, I want that kind of faith in my life. I want to have that kind of assurance in Jesus. He didn't realize it at the time, but later he would come to understand that that moment on that ship was a defining moment for him. And it not only changed his life, but it impacted the lives of millions. His name was John Wesley, and he became the founder of the Methodist movement, a movement that has probably been one of the most influential influences on, uh, on evangelical Christianity, a movement that if it didn't exist, I don't know if I would be a Christian a movement that traces its roots back to that defining moment aboard a ship trapped in a storm. But Wesley's not alone. Fast forward 200 years later, and in 1944, there was a young black man who was accepted into Morehouse University in Connecticut at the age of just 15. He skipped two grades to get there at that age. He was sharp. He was bright. Unfortunately for him, his parents couldn't pay the tuition, so he had to get a job working on a tobacco farm. And that was hard, laborious work, 5 a.m. or 7 a.m. to 5 p.m., all while going to school. But this young man didn't mind one bit, because for the first time in his life, he began to experience something he had never experienced before, equality, equality. Whether he was on the farm or in the town, for the first time, this young African-American was treated with dignity and respect by white people. The defining moment, though, came later on when he had to return home back to the south. And the bus driver informed him that when they crossed the Mason-Dixon, he would once again have to sit in the back of the bus with all the other colored passengers. It was jarring to his system. It was shocking to him. He later wrote to his mother, he said, it was a bitter feeling going back to segregation. The very idea of separation did something to my sense of dignity and self-respect. It became a defining moment for this young man that changed his life. It also changed the course of American history. The young man was none other than Martin Luther King Jr. You see, defining moments, they become catalysts for change and transformation. They become these beacons of light that can redirect our lives, that open up our, our way of thinking and our worldview and change our values. Winston Churchill once said that there comes a special moment in everyone's life, a moment for which that person was born, that special opportunity. When we seize it, we will fulfill our mission and purpose. It will be our finest hour. Well, today in our gospel lesson, we come across a defining moment in Jesus' ministry. 
In fact, apart from the, the death and resurrection, this event known as the transfiguration was the defining moment in Jesus's life. And truth be told, the transfiguration and the cross are, are two events that are intrinsically entwined with one another, like two sides of the same coin. If you notice in our colic today, it even connects what happens at the transfiguration to the events that happen at the cross. The transfiguration starts the passion story, so to speak. As one commentator put it, the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain serves as a profound precursor to the passion. The transfiguration stands as a beacon of hope, assuring us that Christ's suffering will lead us to the triumph of resurrection. This is Jesus' defining moment. It's also the defining moment for his disciples. From this point on, nothing would be the same. Everything was about ready to change for them. Never again could they go back to the simplicity of their former lives. The veil was about ready to be removed, and they would get a glimpse of who Jesus truly is and what it is he was calling them towards. And so for the disciples, it was their defining moment as well. And we can be sure that if it was the defining moment for those first disciples, then it's going to be a defining moment for us today, his present-day disciples. Any of us who have taken hold of the call to follow Jesus will have our lives transformed, changed by what happened on that mountain. There's so much that we could say about the transfiguration. We could unpack this for hours and still have more to dive into. But all I want us to do today is think about one thing, how the transfiguration was and is the defining moment, how it was for Jesus, how it was for his disciples, and how it is for us. So if you will, turn to Mark 9, starting in the second verse there. And to understand how this was the defining moment, there's something we need to recognize about Mark's gospel, something we probably never realized before. In fact, I didn't realize it until this year. You see, this year we've been going through Mark's gospel, and something that I picked up on is his narrative approach. The way he writes his stories is kind of like diptychs. You know what a diptych is? It's two panels that have two different images that are connected together, usually by hinges, that tell a story. It's like he writes his gospel in these little vignette diptychs. And what he does is he presents Jesus in these very high, glorious moments, and then quickly transitions to these very low, difficult scenes. So, for example, back in Mark 1, we studied uh, Jesus' baptism. And there we saw, for the first time in Scripture, the Holy Trinity explicitly appears on the pages of the Bible. God the Father tore open heaven and declared Jesus to be his well-beloved son. It was this incredibly high moment, but then it's interrupted when Mark says, immediately thereafter, the Holy Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by Satan. And suddenly the scene is brought low as Jesus has to face this incredibly difficult situation with Satan. Moving on, then Jesus talks, or Mark talks about how Jesus began to preach and teach and how the crowds were amazed and astonished and captivated by him. It's a high moment. But again, the scene quickly shifts as Jesus encounters this demon-possessed man who then questions Jesus' word and authority. We're once again brought low. Then Mark moves on to talking about Jesus' miraculous healing, a high moment. But then Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees, who accused Jesus of using the power of Satan to perform his miracles and plot for ways to kill him. 
brought low once again. There's always a high followed by an immediate low. And so then we get to Mark chapter 9, where Jesus takes three of his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, onto a mountaintop. And on the mountaintop, it's an incredible experience. Once again, we read that that God the Father opens up heaven and declares this is his well-beloved son. We see that suddenly Moses and Elijah are standing there, representing the law and the prophets. And they stand next to Jesus as witnesses of Jesus' true nature and identity. And the crown jewel of it all is that we read that Jesus is transformed. He's transfigured. Even his clothing is changed. Now, this isn't like Jesus is suddenly starting to glow a little bit brighter, okay? This is not like that old show, Touched by an Angel. Y'all remember that show? Or was I the only weirdo that watched it? You know, at the end of every episode, there was always that one character that would just start to glow, and that was somehow supposed to mean that they were an angel sent by God to help out. If you've never seen it, don't worry, because that's not what's happening, okay? The word that Mark uses in the Greek is metamorphomai. It's the word we get metamorphosis from. So don't think light bulb, think caterpillar to butterfly. Jesus is radically changed and transformed. For Mark, it's the highest of high moments in his gospel. It's incredible. It's glorious. It also means in typical Mark fashion, what's to follow is going to be the lowest of lows. Now, we don't read it today, but we can be sure the low is coming. I like in Luke's version of the gospel when Luke tells us that as Jesus descended the mountain, he set his face then towards Jerusalem. He was determined. He was resolute to go to Jerusalem. It was as if the moment he left Mount Hermon in northern Israel, he fixed his eyes on his mission, which was the cross at Golgotha. And we're going to read in Mark that the moment he takes his foot off the mountain and steps into the valley, He immediately is confronted with demons, with doubts, and with despair, which then ultimately culminates in his suffering and death on the cross. It's the lowest of low. And so for that reason, this is the defining moment for Jesus. This is the moment that sets him towards his calling, his mission, the very reason why he left heaven and came to earth. As one writer put it well, The transfiguration is like a farewell party for a dear friend who's been drafted and is going off to war. We celebrate all that has brought us there. We rejoice with our friend, and yet we know we are sending him off to great danger. This is Jesus' defining moment. Nothing will be the same after. It's also the defining moment for the disciples. We see here that when Peter, James, and John witness this incredible scene, they're, they're taken aback. They're, they're in, they're, they've never seen something so remarkable, so amazing. And so quite naturally, what do they want to do? They want to stay there as long as possible. Peter jumps up and he says, let me build some shelters for all of us. Let's stay here, Jesus. This is quite lovely. In fact, we don't ever have to go back down to that valley, you know, where all those annoying, hard, scary things are, where there's pain and where there's suffering. Let's just stay here, Jesus. But what Peter is about ready to discover and what the other disciples are going to discover is that that's not what it means to follow Jesus. You see, to be a true follower of Jesus, Peter is going to learn it means to follow him, whether he leads you up into a mountain or into the depths of a troublesome valley. In fact, if we were to look at the previous chapter in Mark 8, Jesus told his disciples, if you want to be my disciple, if you really want to come after me, then you need to be willing to deny yourself, 
to pick up your cross daily and follow me wherever I lead, whether that's up this wonderful mountain or back down into a troublesome valley. And so the disciples are going to have to learn that they need to follow Jesus back down into the valley where they're going to face their own trials, their own demons, their own doubts, their own despair, and even their own cross. And so for that reason, this too is their defining moment. Well, guess what, friends? That same imperative that Jesus gave to the 12 disciples is the same challenge he extends to all of us. If we want to be his disciples, if we really want to come after Jesus, then we too need to be willing to deny ourselves, to pick up our crosses daily and follow him wherever he leads, whether that is up a glorious mountain or down a troublesome valley. You know, one of the reasons why I like this story so much is because it very much encapsulates the Christian journey. It's like a thumbnail of the Christian life. And what I mean by that is, is following Jesus will mean that there are going to be times when, when he leads us up into these mountaintop moments where we're going to have intimate connection with the Lord, where, where we're going to experience transformation in our life, where we will feel his grace and his presence and his glory. And the thing is, we really like it when he leads us up the mountains. Amen? Amen. Amen. Yes, we love those moments. We're like Peter. We want to stay in those moments as long as possible. In fact, when we're not experiencing those mountaintop moments, there's a temptation for us to kind of think, is there something wrong with me? Maybe there's something wrong with my faith. Maybe I have weak faith. If I just had stronger faith, then I'd get back up on that mountain with Jesus. Or or maybe God's mad at me. Maybe I'm not following his will for my life. Because surely God's will for me is that I live mountaintop moment after mountaintop moment. But what the transfiguration shows us is that's not the case. That's not true. Because there are going to be times when we're also called to follow Jesus into the valleys. The thing is, we're just not too, too fond of those times, are we? We like to try to avoid the valleys, don't we? John Ortberg has this great little book called It All Goes Back in the Box. And in the book, he describes the most dangerous object in our home. Do you know what the most dangerous object in your home is? It's not your power tools. It's not those sharp kitchen knives of ours. No, no, according to Ortberg, the most dangerous item in our house is the deep cushioned, foot-resting, reclining little death trap known as the easy chair. That's right, the easy chair. Now, why is the easy chair so dangerous to John Ortberg? Because it lures us in. It lures, and once we're trapped there, we become object lessons of that little physics principle we all learned in high school. An object at rest likes to stay at rest. We become apathetic. We become lazy. In fact, we even call them what? Lazy boys. And so Ortberg warns in his book that too many of us are stuck in a type of lazy boy Christianity. What he means by that is that we love the comfortable mountaintop Christianity. We love to follow Jesus when he is at his radiant best. When life is well, when all is peaceful, there is calm and goodness in our lives. And we don't understand why Jesus would want it any differently for us. But what we're seeing here is that's not the whole story. Perpetual easy chair Christianity is not what we're called to. Now to be sure, we do need these mountaintop moments. We do need seasons of rest and relaxation and renewal. And the reason why Jesus leads us to those moments is so he can empower us 
and encourage us and equip us with his grace. But we're not to stay there. Because after he's done that, he leads us back down through the valleys where our mission, our purpose, really dwells. Where that light that we've been given needs to be spread. You see, once we're invigorated and, and encouraged, he's always going to lead us back down. Because down in the valley, in the darkness, is where his light is needed most. We need the mountaintop moment, but we can't stay on the mountaintop. The mountaintop is simply the, the place where we receive the hope and the grace and the light that we hold on to while we go back down the valley. Kind of makes me think of a story I heard once about the soldiers who had to go off to war during World War I. As British soldiers were preparing to go into the horrors of war, there was a little Anglican missionary society that had cards made up. It contained a picture of Jesus. He's standing in the darkness, but his face is, is glowing brightly. And he's holding a lantern that is giving off light into the darkness. The artist's name was Holman Hunt, and every soldier going off to war was giving, given a picture of that painting. So that when they went off into the midst of that horrible darkness, they would have something to hold on to, something to look at, something to remind them that God was with them, that they were not alone, that his light and his strength and his hope would never abandon them. I think there's something really beautiful about that. We need the mountaintop because we need something to hold on to as we go back out there into the valleys. You know, my hope and prayer is that by God's grace, God, every Sunday, here during our worship services at Christ Church, would kind of make this a mountaintop moment for us, where we'd feel as if the veil of heaven was, was just for a moment, peel back, and we could, just for an hour, rest in his presence and in his delight, where we would be encouraged and equipped by the Holy Spirit, where we would sense his grace. And then as we say that final prayer that we say every single week, where we ask the Lord to send us out to do the work that he has given us to do, we would feel invigorated and fully prepared to venture back out into the valleys, carrying his light with us. Back into those valleys where, where Jesus may call us to embrace the hard work of sacrificial forgiveness. Or he might lead us to loving all of our neighbors, all of our neighbors as ourselves, including that one that's really hostile for your beliefs. He might call, call you to stand firm in the truth of the gospel in a very difficult environment. Maybe it's at your job or at your school. He might call us to sacrifice our precious time and think of others' needs before ourselves. He might call us to confront that friend of ours who's been struggling with addiction and then lead us to, to walk alongside with, aside them as they sh go through that difficult journey of sobriety. I don't know what you're going to encounter in your valley. I don't know the particulars. But I do know when we get in the valley, when we walk out those doors and we enter into this broken world, we are all going to face loss and grief and pain and suffering. And the only way that we make it through is by holding on to the grace that God gives us, holding on to his light. The one thing we can't ever do, though, is stay on the mountaintop forever. You see, there's a tension here between the mountain and the valley, between the transfiguration and the cross. And that's okay, because this is exactly what our faith is all about. You see, following Jesus means following him to both the glory and to the grit, to the grace and to suffering. 
Because in the end, it's, it's, it's walking in between these two extremes that we discover what it means to truly follow Jesus. And so I say, with Jesus and with Peter, James, and John, this too is our defining day. This is our defining moment. Nothing can be the same. As we step out those doors and sent out back down to the valley, the good news is, friends, we have nothing to fear because Jesus is walking with us. In fact, he's leading the way. And even if he leads us to our own cross, we still have nothing to fear because the one... Because the God who says the one who is his well-beloved son is also the one whom he says is worthy to be followed. We have nothing to fear. So on our journey with Jesus, as we follow him, we are going to get glimpses of glory. But more often than not, we're going to find ourselves living in the shadow of the cross. This is our defining moment. Nothing will be the same. The question for all of us is, Are you willing to follow wherever he leads you? Amen.